Good to see you. Like Pastor Heather said, my name is Brian. I am one of the pastors here. We have not yet had a chance to meet. I hope that changes soon. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a Bible-equipped mobile device, I want to invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's where we are going to be this morning. If uh, you need a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you use one of those, 952 is the page you're going to want to find. 952. So we are in the year of discovery here at Bridgeway. If you're new around here, we do annual themes every year, and this is our year of discovery where we are seeking to discover more of who God is. We're seeking to discover more of what it means to be close with him, and the, the point of this is not simply to know more stuff. The, the point is to know more of God's heart so we can walk more closely with him. And this series is called Discovering the Kingdom. The Bible talks about this idea of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is anywhere where God is ruling and reigning. And we want to be a part of that kingdom. When we submit ourselves to God's rule and reign in our lives, we are part of his kingdom. So through this series, through this letter called 1 Corinthians, we're just exploring what does that mean practically? How can we be people who are shaped less by the dysfunction in our world, and if we're being honest, less by the dysfunction that exists in each and every one of us, and more by this reality of the kingdom of God. So that's what we're trying to discover as a community. Last week and the week before that, Pastor Lance has introduced to us this church in this ancient city called Corinth, the recipients of this letter we have in our Bibles called 1 Corinthians. And he told us that this was a city that was just full of pride. They had money, they had talent, and they knew it. And they were heavily influenced by the pagan culture around them that placed a high value on looking good, sounding good. And one of their biggest problems was that they had become enamored with what the Bible refers to as worldly wisdom. Now, to be clear, wisdom is a good thing. <laughs> I am not anti-wisdom. I'm not anti-knowledge. I'm not anti-understanding. We could all use more of those things. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge appropriately to different situations in our lives. And God is pro-wisdom as well. We could fill a year or more's worth of sermons talking about all of the things that the Bible has to say about wisdom. I think about what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Or, or later in that same book, in Proverbs chapter 16, it says, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Or I think about one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. I find a way to quote it in just about every sermon I preach. Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul, where Paul, the same person who wrote 1 Corinthians, says, Look carefully now how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So the Bible's pro-wisdom, God is pro-wisdom, but you got to understand that the wisdom that had so enamored the people of Corinth was not wisdom that builds virtue. It wasn't wisdom that was designed to, to serve others and to help others. It wasn't wisdom that was, that was designed to help live life with greater integrity and truthfulness. It was, once again, wisdom that was all about looking good and sounding good. It, it was more about knowing more stuff and using fancy words and rhetorical flourish to appear impressive. I know it's hard to imagine in our world today, but there was a time in human history where people really cared a lot about attracting a lot of attention for themselves 
for really no other reason than just gaining a lot of attention for themselves. I know, you'll just have to imagine what that would be like to live in that sort of society. But that was the world. That, 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 was, that was the ancient world in this city called Corinth and certainly lots of other places as well. But I think that raises an important question. And that is this, that what is wisdom for? Just think about that for a second. What is the point of having wisdom? It's, the Bible says to get wisdom. I don't know anybody who's anti-wisdom. I mean, we complain about all sorts of different things in our world. I haven't heard anybody be like, the problem is there's too much wisdom. Like, no, nobody thinks that, right? But what's wisdom for? What's it for? See, I entitled this message, The Best Kind of Wisdom. Because I believe that the best kind of wisdom is wisdom that we receive from God and then that we put to use to glorify God and serve others. That the best kind of wisdom is wisdom we receive from God and then that we put to use to glorify God and to serve others. The point of wisdom is not self-sufficiency. The point of wisdom is certainly not to, to appear impressive in fact, I would go so far to say that, that for you and for me, if the goal of anything in our lives is to appear impressive, that's probably not going to end well for us. I mean, it might go well in the short term, but it's not going to go well in the long term. And, here, and there are lots of reasons for that, and we don't have time to get into them, but I'll just, I'll just give you one real quick, and, and, and that's this. I don't have to know anything about you uh, to know this. There is absolutely nobody in your life about whom you would say the following. You know what my favorite thing about her is? She just is constantly trying to appear impressive. Just, she just craves my validation all the time. She always, like any conversation, she shifts it around so it's about her. Oh, uh, best thing is she always can beat my stories with a better one. Like, ah, uh, she's just, you know what? I'm gonna text her. We need to get together, right? There's nobody about whom you would say that. See, a desire to appear impressive in Corinth, just as today, and in virtually every other society in the history of humanity, it might possibly work to draw a crowd that will admire you from afar. It might, I mean, it might not, but it might work to attract a crowd that will admire you from afar. But it destroys intimacy, and it alienates those who get close enough to see who we really are. A desire to appear impressive ultimately destroys intimacy, and it alienates those of us who can get close enough to see us for who we really are. And, and I'll just be honest with you. I, I think there was a time in my life when I cared a lot, certainly too much, about appearing impressive. And I think even today, like maybe, I don't know if you, you have this experience as well, that I just, in different situations, I'll just have this like catch in my spirit. Well, I'll sort of ask myself the question, like, why am I doing this? Like whether it's I'm about to post something on Instagram or speak up in a meeting or whatever the case may be, I'm like, Why? And like, I don't think it's wrong to like, hey, we do different things, we wanna celebrate accomplishments. Like, that's fine, I enjoy celebrating others, I like to share what I'm up to with other people. But I just have to have that catch in my spirit where I ask, okay, am I doing this just so people will think a certain way about me? Or is there something more to it than that? Maybe you've had that experience as well. But I don't, I don't just the older I get, I don't wanna, I don't really care about being impressive, right? I, I don't want people to be impressed by me. What, what I realize more and more is that what I want is I want people that love me right? And I don't want people to leave interactions with me going, wow, that Brian, he, he sure is impressive. Like, I want people to leave interactions with me going, gosh, Brian really cares about me, right? Like, don't you, like, wouldn't you say the same, right? Like, appearing in private, okay, it's fleeting, it is what it is. 
but I want people to love me and I want people to feel loved by me. And then I think about Bridgeway. You know, I've been here a long time. Some of you have too. And I don't really care if we're an impressive church. I don't even really know what that means, but I don't care if we're an impressive church. But I want us to be a loving church, don't you? I don't think anybody's like, where is the most impressive church in town? I'm going to go there. Where can I go to be loved and cared for and love others? Like, that's what we want, right? I was thinking about this just, you know, yesterday. Is that, so, so on Thursday, I, I, I spent some time with a, a friend of mine, a gentleman in our church, whose wife is in the hospital in, in the ICU. And I went, I went to the hospital, and, and I spent about an hour with him, which, by the way, pro tip, when you text your wife to tell her you're going to the hospital... I probably don't need to finish that sentence, but <laughs> clarify. Anyway, so we spent an hour together, and, and we, we, just, we talked. We sat, sat in the room, talked for, for, talked for a long time, and we spent some time, and we just prayed for his wife, and we prayed for, for healing, and, and, and you know, it, was, it was a beautiful time together. And then he, he texts me on, on Saturday morning, and he texts me the view from his hospital window, which was on the second story uh, down at Sutter. And down on the pavement right below were two dozen people from our church, gathered early in the morning, in the cold, all bundled up there to pray. And I'm like, that's it right there. Like, that's what church is all about. And these are, these are people like, like this, this, this couple that's in the hospital, they, they've invested in this community, they've loved others so well, and they've built relationships, and people now are there for them in their time of need. And I'm like, yes, that is the sort of church I want to be a part of. And my guess is you would say the same thing. I don't care about being impressive. I want us to be loving. I want us to show up and be Jesus for one another. See, worldly wisdom is for attracting attention and appearing impressive. At its core, worldly wisdom is defined by self-sufficiency. It's a desire to prove ourselves to the point where we don't need God or we don't need anyone else. And and make no mistake about it, this effort towards self-sufficiency, this effort towards being sufficiently impressive that we don't need anybody else, all sorts of people are, are trying to do this. It's found among the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, the young and the old, the partisan and the nonpartisan, among every ethnic group on the planet. I, I believe this to be true, that apart from the work of God's spirit, there is something in each and every one of us that just desires self-sufficiency. I want to be my own boss. I want to be in control. I don't want to have to rely on anyone. And that version of wisdom is fickle, and it is fleeting, and it is ultimately useless. The best kind of wisdom is wisdom that comes from God and that we put to use for God's glory and to serve others. It's the best kind of wisdom. In the book of James, which we're going to study later this year, James, the brother of Jesus, contrasts what he calls wisdom from above with worldly wisdom. And he says that wisdom from above is shown by the meekness of wisdom, that there is a meekness, a humility that comes with godly wisdom. Whereas worldly wisdom, he says, pursues jealousy and selfish ambition. (laughs) Do you see the contrast? It's not subtle, right? In the passage we're going to look at today, Paul has some important points to make about wisdom. And we're looking at a 16-verse section, and he closes out this section with a statement that kind of summarizes everything he's trying to say. He, he contrasts worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And if you're following along on the 
handout you got when you walked in, or if you're, you're, you're using the app or whatever, you want to you do your fill in the blank, here's what it is. We can have the mind of Christ. We can have the mind of Christ. What, what does that mean? On some level, this is, what we're, this is what the whole year is about. But broadly speaking, God in his mercy and his kindness can rescue us from wasting our lives trying to look impressive. And he can give us a new heart and a new mind and new desires so that we, want to, so that we have a desire to take whatever he has given us, whatever gifts and talents he has given us, whatever skills he has given us, whatever abilities we have, whatever wisdom we have, that he can give us a desire to then take those things and use them for his glory and for the benefit of those around us. See, see, when we have the mind of Christ, we can live with full assurance that we have been accepted by God through Christ. Whatever acceptance we could, we could crave out in the world, we have a greater acceptance through Christ so we can live with a sense of security that allows us to have a heart for God and a heart for others instead of just scrambling for more for ourselves. We can have the mind of Christ. So with that, let's jump into the, the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, work our way through verse 16, and we'll make some stops along the way. And I, Paul writes, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul begins by reminding his readers, his listeners, that when he came to them and, and preached to them, when he shared the message of Christ with them, that he didn't come and, and, and sort of play the games of the philosophers and the public speakers that were common in that day. Now, you got to remember, this is the ancient world. There was no Netflix. There was no TikTok. There was no Wordle. Apparently, that's a thing we're all supposed to be into now. There wasn't even Candy Crush, if you can imagine the horror. So when it came to entertainment... Listening to a public speaker was pretty high on the list. I know, sounds miserable. <laughs> and then when it came to education, most people were illiterate. So when it came to learning, you relied on these philosophers and sophists, which is a word that comes from a word part that means wisdom, to tell you kind of what was what and to understand the world around you. So what would happen so public speaking was not only how people learned, it was how people were entertained. So oftentimes speakers were, were judged less by the soundness of their ideas and more by how entertaining they were. Once again, hard to imagine that today, I know. And it was not uncommon for the most skilled speakers to use verbal and emotional manipulation to try to be persuasive. It was not uncommon for, for speakers to use overly flowery language to try to appear intelligent. To put all of this in kind of 21st century parlance, different speakers, what were they trying to do? They're trying to build the brand. They're trying to amass attention. They're trying to appear impressive so that when they get up to speak again, people are gonna come and listen. People are gonna wanna learn from them. They're gonna wanna study under them. They're gonna wanna ultimately pay them for the things that they do. The purpose of all of it was, to, was, was not public education. It wasn't even really entertainment. It was for these speakers to gain a lot of attention for themselves. And Paul says, listen, in my sharing with you, when I came and I was with you, I am not doing that. I am not speaking in a manner where I'm trying to gain attention for myself. Now, if you're anything like me, meaning you're too cynical for your own good, you might read that and think, well, mate, wait a second. Maybe Paul's saying that, oh, I'm not going to come to you and speak in all these fancy ways because like, maybe he just couldn't do it. Like, maybe he just wasn't very good. 
And he's like not a very good public speaker and he's going, oh, all these, you know, super gifted public, uh, who needs them, right? It's like, well, Paul, you're just saying that because they're better than you. That's actually not the case. We have all sorts of evidence throughout the New Testament that shows us that Paul was an incredibly skilled public speaker. In fact, there's this funny story, it just makes me laugh. In Acts chapter 14, you can look it up later. So Paul is in this city called Lystra and he is speaking and sharing the gospel. He's preaching to this, this crowd. And in the course of his preaching, he sees, the Bible says, a man who was on the ground and who had never walked ever in his life. And Paul, as he's speaking, sees this man, prays for him. The guy gets healed. He stands up and people start freaking out. Now, that is not in the text. That's my interpretation of the text, right? They're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Now, this is a pagan Greek city that worshiped all sorts of Greek gods. So what do they say? They, they have no category for what just happened except to say this, the gods have come to us in human form. But what, what we have seen is miraculous. These men, Paul and his buddies, must be gods. So they start assigning them saying, you're like this God, you're like this God, you're like this God. And they say that Paul is like Hermes, who is the Greek god of communication. Now, over the course of my life, I've had people say lots of nice things to me and some not so nice things, but I've never ever had somebody say to me, wow, Brian, you're like a god of communication. <laughs> Nor should they, just to be clear. But if you've got somebody saying, you're like a god of communication, you're pretty good at what you do. You know what you do, right? So Paul is not criticizing skillful speech, and this is certainly not a verse to, to lean on to justify laziness or a lack of preparedness. What Paul is saying is he didn't want to communicate in a way that made him look impressive. He wanted to communicate in a way that made Jesus look impressive. He didn't want people to walk away from his speech going, that Paul, wow, he is amazing. He wanted people to walk away going, this Jesus who Paul speaks of, this, this God who he speaks of, I, I want to know him, I want to know more about him. He is amazing. And, and, and honestly, I think that should be the goal of any Christian preacher anywhere, right? Like, if you leave church today and you think, wow, Brian is amazing, I failed you. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, don't worry, Brian, that will definitely not happen. <laughs> but I failed you, right? My job is not to impress you with me. My job is to teach you the scriptures and point you to Jesus. Now, I've officiated a lot of weddings in my life. And I also spent like eight years of my like preteen and teenage years officiating soccer games. And my approach to those two activities is actually pretty similar. <laughs> you show up with a job to do. And if you do your job right, nobody really remembers you were there, right? See, at a wedding, attention belongs to Jesus, the bride, and the groom, right? Like big, big gap between two and three. Those of you engaged folks, especially dudes, remember, big gap. That's important, right? And the attention at a soccer game or any sporting event, of course, belongs to the players, right? Like if you leave a wedding or a sporting event, like, and the officiant was really memorable, <laughs> and that's, I've attended weddings where I've left <laughs> thinking that, they probably didn't do their job. Right? They probably didn't do their job. And the same is true of an ordinary church service. I mean, all of this. I mean, the, the music, the teaching, everything. I mean, we've got such, such talented musicians up here. We've got such talented techs that are running everything and making it all sound good. And, and those of us who have the, the honor to get up and share with you, like we, we do the work. We put in the time and the preparation and the prayer and everything to try to have something to share that, that makes sense and is, and is helpful to you. But the point of all of it 
is not that you would leave here thinking that any one person is awesome or even that Bridgeway is awesome. We want you to leave here remembering what did we just sing? He has no rival. He has no equal. Now and forever, God, he reigns. His is the kingdom. His is the glory. His is the name that is above all name. Right? And listen, I don't care if you even know my name. I mean, if we're friends, you should know my name. But I don't care if you know my name. But I want you to leave here and know that you can have the mind of Christ. That you can have the mind of Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal. So Paul says to that end that he decided to know nothing among them but Jesus and him crucified. Now that's not to say that Paul literally knew nothing. We know that he was a sharp guy who had a gifted mind, gifted intellect, and had lots of different practical skills. Like the idea is not that I know about Jesus and that's it. Like he knew a lot of stuff. But it is to say that the cross was at the center of everything Paul taught. And and make no mistake about it, for us, the, the, the cross of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith that we follow a crucified and risen savior and we're invited into a cruciform or cross-shaped life. The, the cross is not simply a decoration or a trinket. The cross is the center of our faith. And Paul is being as clear as he can, that he's not interested in pats on the back and he's not gonna use fancy speaking techniques in an attempt to entertain and enamor. He's just gonna point people to Jesus. Verse three. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Man, that last statement is so important. It is so important for each and every one of us that our faith doesn't rest in, oh, well, I need this certain person to explain my faith to me. Oh, well, my faith is so attached to this certain personality. No, no, no. We don't put our faith in the wisdom of a person. We place our faith in the power of God. And to go back a couple verses, this reference to much fear and trembling might have been a reference to Paul's physical condition that we know from different things in scripture that he had a lot of health problems. He, he just was not, he just didn't do well physically. And there are a lot of times he got beat up for his faith, which by the way, in Acts chapter 14, five verses after the crowd in Lystra calls him the God of communication, they stone him. So don't live for the approval of the crowd, folks. They are fickle, right? right? But Paul had a lot of physical issues. Or it could just be that it's a reference to his commitment to maintaining a posture of weakness and humility. Greek philosophers were known for projecting this sort of air of self-importance, and Paul didn't want to do that. And he goes further to say that his message was not about plausible words of wisdom. He says, he says, listen, you didn't listen to me. You didn't respond to my message because I had this, these fancy words that were totally enamoring to you. You responded to my message because of the power of the Holy Spirit because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And how was the power of the Holy Spirit demonstrated? It was demonstrated in changed lives. That Paul showed up in this pagan Greek city that had no Christian background to speak of, that he started sharing about Jesus, that people responded in faith, they confessed their sins, they gave their lives to Jesus, they began to follow him, the church was formed. What is, how is that even possible? It's not, except for the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, There are different places in the New Testament, including later in this letter, 
where Paul is going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit being revealed in what we would call signs and wonders, in miraculous healings, in those types of things. The New Testament is very clear that God is capable of doing those things, that the Holy Spirit can move in those miraculous ways. And we are all in on that as well here at Bridgeway. But in this context, the power of the Holy Spirit is the miracle of a changed heart and a changed life. And I just hope, I hope, I want us to be a church where we believe in God for the impossible, where we believe that God can do the miraculous. And I know I've walked with some of you in different things and we've seen God heal things. We've seen physical healings. We've seen emotional healings. We've seen relational healings. And we celebrate and we praise God for all of those things. And we also celebrate and praise God for the miracle of a transformed heart. We praise God for the miracle that somebody who is far from God would come to know him. I mean, if you know anything about my childhood and background, like, I have no business being here. But God changed my heart when I was a teenager, and here I am, right? That that's a miracle. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have that same story, right? Verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul says, just so we're clear, not against wisdom. There is a wisdom to be imparted here, and it's wisdom for the quote-unquote mature. What does he mean by that? We need to be clear about what he doesn't mean that there is a difference between maturity and immaturity. And for Paul, this is not a difference between believers. The mature aren't some like secret elite society of Green Beret Christians. For Paul in this context, the mature are those who have received and accepted the message of the cross, whereas the immature are those who have not. And that's not meant to be an insult or pejorative or whatever, but there's a different level of understanding life and understanding the world once we understand what God has done through Christ. So that, I think that raises the question, why does Paul use a term like that? Because it is a little bit ambiguous. Like, what do, you, what do you mean by maturity? Well, once again, add it to the list of sort of oddities of the pagan world in, in Corinth, that it was a badge of honor in that society to call yourself wise or mature. And Paul is saying, we have a totally different kind of wisdom to share. And we define maturity totally differently. And then you look at verse 7. People have had a field day with verse 7 over the centuries, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Well, what is it? Do you need a secret password or like a handshake? Or is it reserved only for like pastors or elders or people with seminary degrees or like people with like big YouTube channels? Like how do you get the secret wisdom? What is it? No, it's none of that stuff. In, in Paul's writings, and this is just an important little Bible interpretation nugget, maybe you're reading scripture just to keep in mind. In Paul's writings in different places, especially in Colossians and Ephesians, he talks a lot about the idea of a mystery of God that has now been revealed. A mystery that has now been revealed. So when he talks about a mystery, he's referring to something that was formerly hidden by God from all human eyes that has now been revealed in history through Christ. So God's secret plan that he decreed before the foundation of the world is that he would redeem and save the world through the blood of his son on the cross. And that is the secret wisdom. That is the mystery. It was something that was previously hidden that has now been 
revealed. So you can kind of see what Paul is doing here. And this is, my goodness, this is a message. They certainly needed it in Corinth. But man, do we need this message today. He's taking these ideas of maturity and wisdom and flipping them on their heads, that they are not something that we use to lord over others. They aren't something that we use so that we can kind of puff ourselves up and, 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 and feel like we're superior to other people. See, the Corinthians thought of maturity as like elite level knowledge and rhetorical skill. And Paul says, no, no, maturity is Christ-likeness. Maturity is, to, to borrow language from, from scripture, it is dying to yourself and following Jesus. M- maturity is not defined by your title. It's not defined by your social standing. It's not defined by your academic credentials. It's not defined by how many people know your name. It's not defined by how much power you have. Maturity is defined by dying to self and following Jesus. See, those who are most mature are those who in all humility return to the cross again and again to be reminded of God's unfathomable love for us and who return to the cross again and again to be reminded that we follow, once again, a crucified savior who invites us into a cross-shaped life. That's maturity. And I think we just get this so, I don't know, we get it so twisted sometimes in in church and in society. And I'll I'll tell you what, if you'll just let me get on my soapbox for two minutes here. Um, I know you don't really have a say in that, so sorry. But um, when I think about maturity, I I think about something I've heard just a million times in church world over the years, is we talk about things like, man, things need to be deep. Like, oh, I didn't like that teaching. It wasn't deep enough. Like, man, we need to go deeper and all of that. And just so we're, I'm pointing the finger at myself first. I myself, 17 years old, junior in high school, been a Christian for all of two years, so I've clearly got everything figured out, was just relentlessly irritating to my youth pastors, complaining, our teaching's not deep enough, our teaching's not deep enough, our teaching's not deep enough. Crowns in heaven for my youth pastors for not punching me in the face, all right? Don't hear me saying that we should be shallow. That's not what I'm saying at all. But this has been my experience over the years, and this was certainly the case for 17-year-old me who was an irritant to his youth pastors. Pretty much all the time when I hear people say, we need to be deeper, we need to be deeper, we need to be deeper, what that means is I want to know more stuff. I've never had somebody come to me and say, I need deeper deeper teaching so that I can have deeper application in my life. Not once. Never. Am I saying we should be shallow? No, I am not. Am I saying I'm against deep teaching? No, I am not. If the point of deep teaching is to grow in Christ's likeness, if the point of deep teaching is to grow in my maturity so that I will die to myself and better follow Jesus, I'm in. If the point is to gain more head knowledge so I can win at Bible trivia, not interested. And I don't know about you, I don't know about, this is just for me, and just try this on, see if it fits for you. I am educated way beyond my level of obedience. Way beyond. So I don't need more, I mean, I like, like I, you know, went to seminary, I like that, I read Bible books for fun, like I'm into it, like, right? I, like, I like this stuff. I find it fascinating. But why, what I need most is not deeper teaching. I need deeper application of simple truth. I, I need to learn how to die to myself because I haven't fully figured that out yet. I don't know about you. I need to learn to center my life around God's love for me and his invitation in my life to love others. I need more of that, right? That's the depth that I'm looking for. I want deep application of simple truth. 
See, the immature want to learn in order to appear impressive. The mature want to learn so that they can be transformed and can better serve the world. The immature want more knowledge so they can attract attention for themselves. The mature want to give their lives away with Jesus as their example. The mature recognize we follow a crucified savior who calls us away from the power games of this world and into something better. So that's maturity. And then this wisdom that God imparts, it's wisdom that existed in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world. And what does it say in verse seven? God decreed it before the ages for our glory. That this plan was always in the heart of God to redeem us through the blood of Christ for our good. It is a gracious gift that God gives us. And you'll note, a couple quick last observations, then we'll keep moving. There are two references to the rulers of this age. Why does Paul mention them? Just to summarize that briefly. The Corinthians weren't only enamored by a desire to appear impressive, they were also enamored with power. And the rulers of the age were so obsessed with power that they could only see Jesus as a threat. And they missed it. And they ultimately killed him. They were unable to recognize Jesus as Lord. Now I've talked about power in sermons before and Power in and of itself is not bad. We need people to have power to organize society and, organize and run organizations and things like that. Like power is, can be a good thing. But it is the desire for power that can be so toxic, right? This hunger for power that exists in so many places can just be spiritually devastating. I mean, how many people has our world seen who have projected sort of a veneer of spirituality for the purpose of just amassing power? And how many people have been hurt in the process. And I just got to tell you that if we're really operating out of the wisdom of God, this striving for power just makes no sense. I would say that a Christian who is hungry for power, it's like a nutritionist who eats only at Burger King. It's like, no, like, listen, I'm not judging you if you eat at Burger King. That's up to you. Like, what? You do you. I'm just saying, if you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner there, I'm not taking your nutritional advice, right? It's like, your training would suggest a calling to a different way of life. A hunger for power is a heck of a lot more toxic than anything you can get at Burger King. Jesus points us to a better way. Jesus points us to a better way. So it's not wrong to do things that are impressive, nor is it wrong to hold positions of power. Don't hear me say that, but man, may we guard our hearts and our lives closely so that a desire for these things does not rise above our desire to follow Jesus because when it does, it blocks the flow of God's wisdom into our lives. Let's keep going, verse nine. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Here Paul is combining two passages from the book of Isaiah, and this passage is often used to, to refer to heaven. Perhaps you've, you've heard it read at a memorial service or something like that. Now there are, there are all sorts of passages in the New Testament that, that talk about the glory of heaven and how amazing you know, heaven is and all that stuff, but in this case, Paul's not actually talking about heaven. Which, by the way, if you go to a memorial service and someone reads this in reference to heaven, just let it go. You don't need to correct them. Not, not, the, not the time, not the place. 
What God has prepared is not a reference to heaven. It's a reference to God's plan to save the world through the death of Jesus. God's secret wisdom turns the wisdom of the world upside down. No mind could comprehend that God, the creator of everything, the most powerful being in all the universe would save the world in such a way. No mind could comprehend that Jesus through his weakness would show us real strength. That Jesus through sacrificial love would bring about real transformation. No mind could comprehend this idea that there is a God who conquers not through military or political power, but through a cross soaked in the blood of his own son. No mind could comprehend in our greedy age and our greedy little hearts that the abundant life is found not in accumulation of power and possessions, but it's found in dying for ourselves, or excuse me, dying to ourselves. No mind could comprehend that that is what God has prepared for those who love him. What a gift, what a gift. These things, it goes on to say, God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that opens our hearts to understand these things. For the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God, verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So Paul now shifts his attention to the Holy Spirit's role in us gaining godly wisdom. And he helps us understand that ultimately if we're going to have godly wisdom, we need the Holy Spirit's help in that. And to help explain this, he uses the analogy of a human person, saying nobody understands truly the spirit of a person, or excuse me, a person, except for the spirit of that person. And like on some level, I think we all know that that makes sense. Like even in, in this room, I have varying levels of personal relationship with all of you. So some, some of us, we've never met in person. So, so all you know about me is what you've heard me share in sermons or whatever the case may be. Or if you're new to Bridgeway and you're like, I don't know anything about you at all, right? And that's okay right? Or if we, if we chat occasionally, then you probably know that my family is really important to me, that my entertainment of choice is sports. I just, I, you know, not really a movie guy, not a big TV guy, but man, I love, as the famous sportscaster Jim McKay would say, the, the, the drama of human competitions. Love that stuff, right? Whether I'm watching it or participating. You know that if it comes up in conversation with me quite frequently. If, you, if we chat occasionally, you know, just like, like I talk with my hands a lot, like more than is necessary, like, this isn't an act for all of you. I do this, like, at home. It's very bizarre, right? You don't have to hang around with me long before you notice that. If we're acquaintances, then maybe you know that I, I enjoy the outdoors. You know the, the books I read. You know that, you know, one of my favorite things to do is, is being involved coaching my kids' sports teams. Like, that's just a big part of my life. If we're friends, maybe you know what gets me excited. Like, what, what, what fires me up? Or what fires me up in a different way? What makes me nervous? What makes me angry. What, maybe you know, if we're friends, you know the, the issues in the world that are closest to my heart that I'm deeply concerned about. If we're friends, you also know a lot of my annoying and irritating qualities and have hung around with me despite all of them. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> and if we're really close friends, maybe I've reached out for you. I've reached out to you for prayer about stuff going on in, in my life where I, I'm just desperate for God's help. If we're really, really close, maybe you know my fears and my insecurities. If we're really, really close, you, you have a pretty intimate knowledge of my flaws and how with God's help I'm seeking to overcome them. 
But wherever you are on that spectrum, and, and you would probably say the same thing about the people in this room, right? The people all over that spectrum. Wherever you are on that spectrum, the fact of the matter is there's part of me that's just me. That, that you can't fully understand if, unless you're just me, right? And it's not that I'm trying to hide anything, but that's just how it is. And again, you know that that's true, even for your spouse, even for your family members. There's part of you that's just you. To get in sort, sort of side, inside someone's spirit, that's necessary for full comprehension. And in the same manner, it is the spirit of God that helps us comprehend the wisdom of God. The fact of the matter is, if we're going to understand God, we need the intimate knowledge of him that comes from his spirit. And the good news is, Jesus says when, that when he was on earth, he promised that when he departed, the Holy Spirit would come. And we see in the book of Acts, that we see it at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and fills people. And we know from what the Bible teaches, and I hope you know this from experience, that the Holy Spirit helps us understand God. When we place our faith in Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to teach us and instruct us. I think about one of our core values here at Bridgeway, of knowing God. We want to be a church full of people who, who know God, and we define that as developing an intimate, accurate, growing relationship with God. And then another kind of key statement for us here at Bridgeway is our identity statement, that we want to be scripture-soaked and spirit-led people. And I see those things as fitting together so beautifully. Why? Because if, if we're going to know God, we have to know our scriptures. We have to be soaked in the scriptures. The scriptures are God's primary revelation of himself, right? And then we have to have the Holy Spirit. We have to have the Holy Spirit who helps us make sense of God's word. We have to have the Holy Spirit that helps us see, even, even in our pride, even in our desire for self-sufficiency, that salvation is not something we earn, but rather it's something that is freely given to us through Christ and we receive by faith. We need the Holy Spirit to do these things. Are there elements of who God is that will always remain a mystery to us in this life? Yes. But we can know God and we can follow him rightly with the help of the Holy Spirit, but we can't do it on our own. Verse 12. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Briefly, the spirit that is from God is the spirit that helps us understand the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the salvation that God has freely given to us. The spirit of the world is that which would cause us to deny the cross and rely on our own self-sufficiency. Keep going. And we interpret this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This relates to something Paul said in the prior chapter and that Pastor Lance talked about last week, where, where Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? And, and I, I think about it this way. Isn't it true, and I, I've made reference to this in the, the teaching already, isn't it true that there's something in us that desires personal autonomy, right? Like there's something in us that wants to be able to call the shots, make our own decisions, make our own rules, do what we want to do, not have to worry about pleasing other people or upsetting other people or whatever. Like we want to be the boss. We want to be in charge, we want a God, if we're really honest, we want a God who blesses our agenda and makes everything go well for us instead of a God who actually invites us to set our agenda aside to take up his. Like Jesus' own disciples, we want a God who is a earthly conqueror and ruler who will allow us to share in his earthly glory. 
not a crucified savior who calls us to come and die to ourselves and follow him. But in the upside down kingdom of God, we see that our lust for power will lead us to spiritual poverty, but there is great richness in surrender and service. The natural person, somebody who is far from God, and I say this without judgment, the natural person cannot comprehend these things. They just make no sense if you look at things through the world's lens to to live in that way. But when we have the Holy Spirit, it helps us see the truth of these things, right? Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Do not use this verse if you are trying to dodge accountability. (laughs) That is probably the most important thing I could say about it. Oh, I'm a spiritual person. No one can judge me. Well, you're also not very nice, and you didn't do the dishes when you said you would, so there are consequences for that, right? This is not, and, and, and I, I say that, like all joking aside, because that is exactly how this verse has been used. Over, like rampant spiritual abuse has taken place by those who say, no, 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 no one, I am, I, am, I, I am absolved from any sort of correction or discipline or anything. I'm a spiritual person. Nobody can correct me. That is absolutely not what this verse is saying. And it's certainly not even saying that we're above correction from non-believers or those out in the world. But a better way to understand this word judge, or I should say the concept judge, because judge is a good translation of the the Greek word. It's less about rendering judgment and it's more about understanding. The spiritual person has levels of understanding that are simply unavailable to somebody whose heart has not been opened to the Holy Spirit. In in commenting on this verse in his wonderful little book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, D.A. Carson says this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He says that the spiritual person can talk about the beauty of holiness, right? When we understand Jesus, holiness is not like some weird like morality handcuffs or whatever the case may be. It's not a burden. It's a, it's a joy. It's a beauty. We can talk about the miracle of God's redemption of the world through Christ. We can talk about the depth of our sin and God's incredible, momentous grace. We can talk about forgiveness because we have a real lived experience with forgiveness that is better than anything the world can give us. We can talk about the hope of heaven and how because of the hope of heaven, we're not just biding our time and waiting for what's next, but the hope of heaven can influence every day of our lives today. We can talk about the Holy Spirit and how he transforms us. These are all areas of wisdom and insight that are available to you. They're available to each and every one of us in Christ. And these are realms of knowledge and wisdom and understanding that again, this isn't, I'm not judging anybody, but these are realms of wisdom and knowledge of understanding that simply cannot be ours apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and apart from an understanding of what God has done for us through Christ. Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? It's another quote from Isaiah, and it's a verse that reminds us that in the final analysis, God's ways are above our own. In our human frailness and our human fallenness, there's a lot of things we can know, but there are certain elements of who God is that will remain a mystery, and that's hard for us. I don't think as humans, we're not good with mystery, right? But there's certain elements of who God is that will remain a mystery. And because of our wayward hearts, there are times when what he calls good, we will call foolish and we'll resist his kindness as he calls us to himself. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? And then he closes it out with the phrase that we started with. But we have the mind of Christ. 
we have the mind of Christ. We can understand the things of God. We can understand the power of the cross where Jesus died to save us from our sin. We can understand the poverty, and I say that in the strongest sense of the word, the poverty of living for ourselves and for our own impressiveness and power and the beauty of seeking to use the wisdom that God has given us to, be, to bring blessing. And as we grow in our faith, we can begin to see the implications of Jesus' work on the cross for our jobs, for our marriages, for our singleness, for our parenting, for our hobbies, for the way we treat people, for the way we engage with an unbelieving world. Maturity is learning to apply the reality of the gospel to all of these different areas of our lives. In just 30 seconds to give us a quick example, whatever your job is, the gospel has something to say about the way that you go about your work. Even if it's, even if, here's just a very simple example. You have an identity that is secure in Christ. You go to work every day with the approval of heaven. You go to work every day confident that your identity is not found in your performance. It is found in who God says you are. So you can do your, you can have a job that has nothing to do with anything connected to your faith or so it would appear on the surface. And you can go do that job with excellence, with the, with the wisdom God has given you, with humility so that you don't need to get defensive, you don't need to be threatened if things don't go, don't go your way, and with joy knowing you are serving the world, you are bringing God's blessing to people by the way that you perform your job. See, that's maturity, is it's learning to understand these things and to apply them in greater and greater measure. We can gain more and more of the mind of Christ. One final thought as we close, and then we're done. And I'll warn you, the thought has two parts, so a little pastor trick there. But our message, as a church and as individuals, has to be the cross. It's the beautiful truth that God has forgiven our sin through the death of Jesus, and he has restored our broken relationship with him through our faith in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And, and, and hear me on this. If we as a church or we as individuals make any other message primary, we are succumbing to worldly wisdom. It's not that other issues don't matter. We can and we should talk about other, you know if you've been around Bridgeway, we talk about a lot of different issues here and what God has to say about them and that is good and that is right and that is beautiful and I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that does that and there's so many other great churches in our region that do that as well. But our primary message is the cross. We, we are not a social club, although I hope you have lots of friends here. We are not some moral self-improvement society, Right? God help us, we are certainly not a political action committee. We are a cross-shaped, gospel-centered people. That's our identity, that's our message, that's who we are. And our concern for other issues, hear me on this, our concern for other issues is an extension of the gospel's transforming power in our lives. So that's part one, part two. I look at my own life, and there are a lot of issues I care about a lot. There are even issues that I'll sometimes talk about on my own personal social media. I don't really do that anymore, too many headaches, but there are issues I'll talk about. There are issues where I'll give money or I'll give time or I'll write letters or I'll attend protests or whatever the case may be. But all of that, for me personally, it is an extension 
of the power of the gospel in my life. It is because this is who Jesus is, because Jesus has transformed me, because Jesus has shown us how to live through his sacrificial life and death. What does that mean for these different issues that I care so deeply about? And, and you've got those issues too, and maybe they're the same as mine, maybe they're different than mine. God calls us to be passionate about different things. But I need you to know, there's absolutely nothing that I do that is motivated by a desire for worldly power or worldly politics or worldly status seeking or any of those things. And I hope that you can say the same. And if you can't, that's okay, but I hope that you understand that Jesus calls us to a better way. That Jesus calls us to a better way where we can live with the best kind of wisdom, the wisdom of the cross, so that we can have the mind of Christ, so that we can follow Jesus with the wisdom that he gives us, and then live our lives in ways big and small to glorify him and serve the world around us. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. If you're here today and you need prayer for absolutely anything, these men and women are hoping that you will give them the privilege of praying for you. So please do come and see them if there's anything we can pray for you today. I want to pray a blessing over you and then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you that we can indeed have the mind of Christ. That your Holy Spirit can so transform us and can so move in our hearts that we can see that there is a better way, that we can see the wisdom of the cross that is foolishness to those who are perishing, but we can see that it is the power of God. We thank you for your plan, the plan, is the, the plan that has been in your heart from before the foundation of the world to rescue us from our sin, to save us, to redeem us, to restore our relationship with you through the death of Jesus on the cross. We thank you for the incredible sign of your love that the cross is. And we thank you that you have called us into a cruciform life, a life where we are called to be living sacrifices, to use the gifts you have given us, the wisdom that you have given us to glorify you and to bless the world. So God, I pray a blessing over every single person here in this room and all of us watching online. God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you show us what it means? Would you show us the beauty of what it means to die to ourselves and to follow you? And may the result be that you are glorified and may the result be that we are able to love and serve those around us and that they may experience a touch of your love through us. So we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day. We'll see ya.